Hey, welcome back to Tunes Tunes Podcast. I'm your host, Harold. As always, you can follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. We have a very special guest in the studio. Well, he's not in the studio, but he's talking to us tonight. It's Mr. Dave Elkins of May. How's it going, Dave? I'm doing awesome, man. How are you? I am great. Thanks for taking the time, man. This is uh, very exciting. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I am, in fact, in a studio, just my own. So even though we're not in the same studio, your studio tonight, we're both in studios. So. Oh, we're we're in the studio, the respective studios. We are in and, the uh, respective studios. <laughs> Let's chat with Dave. Uh, he's breaking uh, breaking our trend of uh, having Shane's on. We had Shane from Valencia, Shane from Silverstein, and now we uh, we have Dave from uh, from May. So that'll be funny. <laughs> Um, it was just a funny trend, man. But like I was mentioning to you earlier, it was a, a a nice opportunity for me to be able to chat with people whose music really resonated with me. And uh, when I think about music like that, I think of May, uh, specifically the Everglow came out in 2005. And that just hit at just the right time for me. And that was a very impactful album for me, man. And so, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about, you know, Getting into music, uh, some of some of the May stuff, a uh, couple other things, but we'll get into that, man. But uh, let's just start at the beginning, man. Uh, can you kind of talk about what kind of music was around when you're growing up? Like, what do you remember listening to when you're growing up? Cool, yeah. Um, well, uh, I had um, uh, my parents divorced when I was probably a year and a half or so, maybe two years old. And the reason why I bring that up right off the bat is uh, my dad uh, would drive around with me in the car a lot, um, and we would listen to music. And so I started singing um, alongside my dad uh, through the tapes, the cassette tapes he would play in his car back when I was two, three, four years old. And I was born in 82, so this would have been like 84, 85, 86, and... Um, he, uh, was raised, um, in a strict Christian, uh, home, like, as a teenager. So by the time he had me, which was like, he was 20, I think when he got married and 21 when I was born, uh, he had this kind of rule that we would only listen to Christian music. And, um, I live with my mom and my stepdad and my stepdad, um, had quite the CD collection and none of it was Christian. So I would listen to like eighties Christian rock and even like hip hop and rap. And of course, like there are these artists like DC talk and jars of clay and Petra and newsboys and Michael W. Smith. And honestly, in the eighties, there wasn't like a watered down version of a quote unquote secular artist that 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 was like the Christian music to listen to. So this guy Michael W. Smith, he put out an album in like I want to say like eighty seven. It's called The Big Picture, and it's still like some of the best keyboard work I've ever heard, and keyboard synthesizer production I've ever heard um, on an album. And at the same time, you know, fast forward to like 1994, living with my 
stepdad and mom, I would listen to Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, which is also one of the best. Wow. Uh, like, <laughs> you know, synthetic meets organic um, productions right. um, to this day that I've, I've, I've ever heard. Um, so there was like an interest in songwriting uh, that was actually palpable on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Um, the Christian, the secular, but I like my earliest childhood memory is my mom holding me in her arms and dancing uh, with me to the thriller album. And so that oh, came wow. out the year I was born. And, um, I was probably, you know, if I can remember and it makes sense to her, I was probably like two or so, uh, cause it was at my grandparents' house, which is where she moved back after my parents divorced when I was super young. But in 85, my stepdad and my mom married, and my stepdad introduced me to Abbey Road and uh, the Joshua Tree and wow. um, Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd, and um, a number of Led Zeppelin albums. And uh, so I quickly understood all of the rock and roll um you know, that I could get my ears listening to from both aspects of my family life um, and appreciate it for what it was. So um, by the time I was uh, like 9, 10, 11 years old, which would have been 91, 92, 93, I had my own subscription to Columbia House and BMG. And for those who are young and don't really understand what that is, before there was streaming, and before there was even uh, internet, there was uh, these mail-in, you basically subscribe to uh, these, these subscription-based models, I guess, where you uh, pay to receive um, catalogs every month, and the catalogs have all of the albums in CD and cassette tape format they probably had vinyl too maybe they didn't um in the 90s because vinyl kind of hit a low and wasn't really collected and then it you know it's obviously come back and made a real impression on the way people you know really collect music but i was collecting cassette tapes and cds and what you could do is like in the sunday paper you would get an ad for columbia house and you would be able to get like something like i don't know 16 cds for a penny and then what you have to do is like every month you have to receive their uh, catalog and um, they have CDs that are full price, half price. You have to buy a certain number of full price CDs or cassette tapes over the course of a year to, you know, keep your membership valid. And so I jumped on that and BMG was just another version of the same thing. And the only reason why I had memberships to both was because I wanted all the music I could get my hands on. So by 91, 92, 93, I was getting uh, maybe not Pearl Jam 10 when it came out, but definitely Pearl Jam Versus when it came out, uh, definitely Pearl Jam Vitology when it came out, and I was definitely an alternative rock kid um, for most of what I was listening to at, at the tender age of 10, 11, 12. Um, so I was into Stone Temple Pilots, Rage Against the Machine, Soundgarden. Um, I was into like space rock bands like Hum and Failure. But also, like, 
I guess it was considered pop radio, but MTV used to play music videos all the time. And um, the radio station Z104 that I listened to in the early and mid-90s, they would play what MTV was playing. And so you would listen to the radio for an hour, and you would hear Counting Crows, and then you would hear SWV, and then you would hear Dr. Dre, and then you would hear Nirvana, and then you would hear Crash Test Dummies, and you would hear Pearl Jam. You'd hear it all in a row. And so that was really, really wonderful for me because I was able to uh, enjoy and learn amongst like multiple genres of music. Um, my dad would sing with me with these like Christian, you know, music songs, and I could still like really understand what was, you know, creative musically, what was innovative musically. Um, because my dad was a big uh, music fan in general, and so uh, he would teach me everything he could. My dad was a lead singer in a band when he was 20 years old, and so I knew that my mom played piano when uh, I was born, and so I picked up on a lot of musicality and just love and consistent, constant interest in music from my mom, my dad, my stepdad, uh, you know, a bunch of different family members, uh, held music very high. Uh, and so, you know, by the time I was probably three, four, five, I was singing along to everything I could, you know, carry a tune and, um, know the lyrics to. And, um, I would, uh, sit at the piano while my mom would play it. And I'd sit in the car with my dad while he would sing along to everything he played in his car. And then on Friday nights, my stepdad would take us to go get pizza and he would drink a pitcher of beer and my mom would drive us home and then he'd just crank uh the the tapes that he had in his car and then we'd sit out we'd sit in the living room I'd sit on the floor Indian style he'd sit in his recliner and he'd just crank like Eric Clapton and um just like classic rock as as it would be called today but my love for the Beatles especially uh, came from my stepdad and, and those formative years. And so by the time I was, you know, in like late years of elementary school and middle school, like music just had a really profound impact on my life. I remember I would write lyrics to other people, like, like bands I was listening to, I would write lyrics on paper to their songs just because I wanted to see what it was like to see my handwriting write poetry that was song lyrics and um before I could play an instrument I just I wanted it so badly and uh so I, I just know like from as far back as I can remember music has just been everywhere all the time yeah it's so interesting too it's like you're t talking about the formative years a little bit and it's it's definitely like you know we have that foundation of hearing everything that is around us growing up and I take elements of like you know, there's like a foundation of what my mom listened to growing up that still resonates with me that, you know, certain music or certain artists have like a soft spot for me. And, you know, it, it's like interesting how it can help kind of shape your taste and what you're interested in and what resonates with you. And so I think you nailed it, man. Like those formative years, um, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was like, you know, leading up to, you know, being in your first band and 
stuff with like sky's the limit and may and all that how does that kind of help shape uh you know going into those bands and the kind of sound and the things that stuck out to you well so my first band was called loser friendly and i was in that band the summer before my freshman year of high school and i was the drummer in that band and in those years after writing um you know other people's song lyrics on paper i i realized that i had rhythm and i just needed to sit behind a drum kit to figure out how to play it so i used to sit in my room on the edge of my bed with chopsticks and air drum but specifically because I wanted to teach myself how to play the drums. I remember sitting in science class in the seventh grade, and I was like, you know, kind of daydreaming, not paying attention um, to what was being taught in there. And I was teaching myself the song Drain You by Nirvana on the album Nevermind. It's like a snare groove where the hi-hat keeps you know, four beats, but the snare uh, does like a uh, ah, ooh, ah, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ah. The ooze are the kick drum. But right. I was just <laughs> like, I remember having an epiphany in class today. I was like, oh, I don't have to always move my arm to hit the snare when I'm moving my arm to hit the hi-hat. I didn't have a kit to like, like prove that to myself, but in the middle of of class, I, I was listening to the song in, in my mind and I was, you know, training myself to move my hands appropriate, appropriately, you know, to play that, that Dave Grohl drum groove. And so I was a drummer by showing up. I met a guy, I went to, it was like my dad took me to a church youth group event and introduced me to uh, a son of a friend of his. And that friend was like, oh, I'm, I'm in, starting a band. We're going to call ourselves Loser Friendly, and we need a drummer. And I was like, well, I can play drums. And, you know, like, I really believed I could, um, even though I didn't have a kit and I didn't really have. At that point, I probably did, uh, in between the seventh grade and the ninth grade, I probably did sit on a kit a couple of times because I did have some friends who did have kits. But... um he said, well, we're going to rehearse at this place, and uh, the guitar player actually has a drum set, so you don't need one, but come to the rehearsal. And so I came to the rehearsal, and we played, like, Super Drag, Who Sucked Out the Feeling, and we played, uh, I think it was um, Come As You Are, Nirvana, and we played, like, a handful of covers. And then there was this one original song, I remember it's called Nickel. I don't know, like why it was called nickel but that was the first song in this first band i was in called loser friendly and we had this like practice which after we were done playing these songs the guys told me that i had the spot and i was going to be the drummer and, and loser friendly and they said we're got a party this weekend that we're going to play here at this house and we're just going to play covers and as many originals as we can write and you know practice before this Saturday and it was you know it was like summertime so I probably had like all week to geek out and get excited about it so I like basically had my first tryout and my first show all in the same week and um, man all the guys <laughs> were awesome. older than me I remember they were all seniors in high school 
uh, except one of them was a junior. And so, you know, being a freshman, like summer into freshman year, so technically I'm not even in high school yet. I'm hanging out with these seniors and uh, juniors in high school. Um, I was just like in awe of them and the fact that, you know, they could be in a house driving cars, you know, to play a house party when I hadn't really done anything like that without being dropped off by a a parent or an older friend or anything. So it was kind of like cool by association because of the guys that were in my band, you know, I was in their band and all of a sudden we were, we were playing shows and, uh, we probably lasted for about nine months and probably played about 10 to I'd say 15 shows in that time. And um, I remember my first uh, like show that my parents came to. They brought their uh, video camera. And so fast forward, since I joined the band, my dad uh, bought me a drum set. And we had a, a show to play uh, like a weekend or two later. And when I set up my drums, I didn't, I didn't know enough about like drum hardware to know that I needed to like really tighten, uh, the, uh, like bolts on the drum hardware. So like during a song, my cymbal just like tilted over and was facing me, you know, straight on like a gong. And I thought that my, my dad (laughs) bought me a a bad drum set that just like, you know, was broken. Because right. I didn't, I didn't know enough about like, you know, the technical uh, details of right. maintaining a drum set and um, and using one, you know, appropriately. So that took just some like, time. Just like way to cheap out, Dad. <laughs> yeah. So you know, then then someone told me, no, 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 these, you know, they loosen and they tighten, and you you don't have to just keep the the cymbal stands at this level you can lower them and raise them i was like oh my gosh yeah of course you know but i was just like so in awe of that moment that i kind of just like jumped into it without learning um some of the basic things that you know are obvious to those who might have a different approach but mine was always like i think i can do it so just put me in a in a place and an opportunity to try and I am going to make sure that I don't fail. And if I do, it'll be silly and we'll laugh about it and it'll be like a drum hardware story. But I'll you know, do my best to make sure I don't speed up, make sure I don't slow down, um, you know, just like be dynamic and be musical with my drumming, but not take away from the song because I love songwriting, too. And you know, I just, I knew enough and noticed enough to get myself started and to just kind of be bold and, and willing. Um, but I did have to kind of learn things in the middle of like, you know, being responsible for them because I just kind of was willing to just jump in head first that way. Right on, man. Yeah. Well, how does that kind of take, uh, how do you kind of take the turn from doing that, you know, making, getting your starting drums? Yeah. So like I was a drummer in that band, I was a drummer in that band and, and the band broke up like nine months later. And, um, I played with, uh, like shows with this other band. Uh, I was in these Christian bands growing up cause my, you know, since my dad was clear that I need to listen to Christian music, I kind of taught my 
myself, you know, if if you just like kind of follow the rules of your dad for the time being, you'll get to play in bands and you know, you'll get these opportunities and so I just kind of ran with it. But my second band was called Mustard Seed and they were already a band but they needed a bass player. And uh, the guitar player in Loser Friendly taught me the C chord on guitar. And so I uh, actually, uh, to backtrack, my grandparents bought me a Fender classical acoustic guitar uh, for Christmas one year, but I really wanted a drum set. So when they bought me this acoustic guitar, I want to say this was like in the seventh grade, I just put it under my bed and I just waited for a drum set to show up eventually. And eventually one did. But as soon as I did get that uh, drum set and get, got to play drums in that first band, the uh, guitar player taught me the C chord, and I taught myself like two other chords and wrote a song like that weekend. And because I did want to be a songwriter, I didn't want to play other instruments, but drums were like most fascinating to me as a kid growing up. So Mustard Seed was a band, but their bass player quit, and they asked me to join and play bass. And I did. And I loved singing all throughout my childhood. And I just volunteered to sing some harmonies and backup vocals. And I did. And when that band broke up, um, I moved from bass to electric guitar. And I started writing songs for my own band. And that band was called Promised Land. <laughs> we had these really cheesy, like, right in front of you kind of Christian <laughs> Love uh, it. Cliche band names. But um, Promised Land, uh, I played guitar and I got my first. I had like a uh, crate, a blue voodoo, uh, solid state combo amp. And I had like a uh, Ibanez kind of strat copy guitar, if I remember correctly. It was like black and white. Didn't have any effects pedals. I just kind of, you know. It was distortion and clean was all I really knew back then. And um, I played guitar in that band. I sang some lead, and I shared lead vocals with our drummer's sister, who uh, sang as well. And that band lasted like, you know, a year or a year and some change. And then um, soon after that uh, was my band Sky's the Limit. And Sky's the Limit was... uh, the first time that I was like solely writing all of the lyrics or a lot of the lyrics, all the music or most of the music, and we were a three-piece. So just guitar, bass, drums, and that meant that I had all the responsibility of guitar where the other bands that I was in, uh, you know, if I was playing guitar, we had a, a second guitar player who was actually like the lead guitar player and carried more of the intricate parts for, you know, a bunch of teenagers in high school. Um, but in Sky's the Limit, that's when I really started to pay attention to the guitar I was playing, the amp I was using, um, the pedals that, you know, were available to me. I started using delay and reverb and gain staging with different distortions and just kind of like, instead of jumping in head first and figuring out the details later, I was like, well, I'm, I'm really enjoying being in these bands. I really want to do my very best each time I play. I really want to write the best lyrics that I know how to write. You know, of course I'm just a teenager. Um, but everything was very important to me that I do my best and that I always like 
just learn from all of the artists that I love and, and kind of hope to put myself on that level, even if I'm not, you know, as a musician or a songwriter yet on that level, just really thoughtful about my, you know, the stuff that I was creating. And I think it was just like having all of that respect and admiration for songs and songwriters and artists through what my parents taught me growing up. Um, I just really valued it as art and it really just like made, you know, made everything clearer music. It made memories clearer. It made moments as they're happening, just like more vibrant and more beautiful. If music is accompanying the moment and, you know, just being a teenager going through little teenage relationships and, uh, I bounced around from schools a lot since my parents were divorced. I kind of lived with my dad sometimes, lived with my mom sometimes, and uh, both parents uh, moved around a little bit. And as a result, um, geez, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, and eleventh grade, I went to like six schools in five years. And man, music was the thing that always got me like hanging out with my immediate friends was, you know, just talking about bands I liked or being able to play the drums in a band in the ninth grade. And so even though I went to a small private school for one year in the ninth grade, like my band played one of our high school parties. And um, I was the only kid from the school who was in the band. And so it was really cool that, you know, this new kid for one year uh, brought his band and he played the drums and, so it's like music was always like the thing that got me into a comfort zone if I could cuz since I did move around a lot I was both introverted and extroverted at the same time I kind of had to uh speak up and and maybe even show off a little bit just to be noticed because I was bouncing around so much and music was that thing that allowed me to do that. So uh, as a senior in high school, um, Sam Morissette, the drummer that was in Mustard Seed and Promised Land with me, we now went to the same high school. We were at Great Bridge High School in Chesapeake, Virginia together, and he was my drummer. And then he introduced me to his friend Dan Zook, and Dan Zook was the bass player. And um, I was, uh, you know, like 17 years old or so listening to emo and indie rock music and alternative music almost exclusively. So I loved bands like the Deftones and Jimmy Eat World and Sunny Day Real Estate and Promise Ring and Mineral and uh, still loved, uh, you know, like my uh, early, mid and even like mid late 90s records like Third Eye Blind meant a whole lot to me when that album came out in 1997. And um, so Sky's the Limit was like an opportunity for me to I guess like be the closest thing to what I was listening to as far as like songwriting and being in a band and so those like emo indie bands they were writing music that didn't sound like it was you know recorded in a studio with a half a million dollar budget and somehow like those records made it you know to my ears and into my car stereo at that point. And so there was like something really um, empowering about, you know, learning about a band like 
Sigaros or Death Cab for Cutie and being like, well, when I plug in my guitar, it sounds just like that guitar that I'm listening to right there. And I can do this. This is something I can really do. And so that was like the way that I got through high school and all of the schools that I, you know, bounced around between. Uh, I was always playing music and, and meeting people who liked, you know, the, the bands and the type of music I was I was listening to as well. So I graduated from high school in the year 2000. And there's something really special about that for me in that all my, my like, educational life, I always knew I was going to graduate in the year 2000. When you show up for kindergarten as a five-year-old, uh, they actually tell you, you know, if you guys you know, do your best and study hard and make good grades in school. You're going to graduate in the year 2000. You're going to be part of the the new millennium class. And so I just thought that was amazing that, like, I just happened to be born in 1982. And if I, if I you know, did my homework and studied hard, uh, I'd graduate in, in this, like, new millennium. And um, so with that came, like, this kind of, like, feeling like, I could do whatever I wanted to do. And of course, being a kid of the 80s, um, that was sort of a theme that was given to a lot of us. Uh, you know, do what you want to do, be who you want to be. There's nothing that you can't do if you put your mind to it. And and also there's no occupation that, you know, you can't uh, go for, even if it doesn't exist yet. You know, there's entrepreneurial mindset uh, that was like really um strong and empowering a lot of a lot of kids in the in the 90s and so it it wasn't crazy to be like well I want to be a I want to be a musician I didn't necessarily want to be famous but I always wanted to be a musician uh, I didn't care if we got a lot of attention but I you know I had already been in three different bands uh in high school that allowed me to play drums bass and guitar and so you know a lot of a lot of kids don't get those kind of opportunities but I already had those and I graduated in the year 2000 and I didn't know what to do next so I went to Old Dominion University which is just like the local uh you know public university uh in Norfolk Virginia I was born in a hospital in Norfolk Norfolk Virginia so it just made sense for me to go to the 13th grade and um I didn't know what I was studying I didn't know what I was doing there but it just seemed logical that I go to college. And so when I was in college, uh, my first year, I met uh, Jacob Marshall, who is the co-founder of May and May's drummer and my best friend since like 1999 when we officially met. But um, I was still in Sky's the Limit, and so I wasn't, um, you know, playing the field to get into another band. But my my bandmates in Sky's the Limit, they were all going to college too, and they were becoming more serious with girls they were dating and uh, jobs that they had and stuff. And so it was one of those times where some of us wanted more of the band and some of us didn't. Well, I was the one who wanted more of the band, and, and the other guys were, you know, just kind of focused on other things that, you know, teenagers do when they graduate from high school and kind of have more freedom and more of a curiosity of who they want to be and so uh Jacob was actually going to join Sky's Limit because our drummer uh Sam he just like was telling us well I'm you know I'm kind of really busy with school and work and I don't know if I can do this right now or even anymore 
And so that didn't happen, but uh, Jacob and I just started like bonding over music, over the ideas of what our band could do if, if you know, if we did in fact start one. And um, a really good friend of mine, Mark Paget, he, uh, as like a teenager, started his own recording studio in our hometown, and he recorded the Sky's the Limit um, LP that we recorded as seniors in high school. And uh, he reached out to me after we were done working on that project, and he said, hey, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like learning, and I'm flying by the seat of my pants here, but I really love audio engineering, and I want to keep doing it. So I heard that you're getting ready to start a band with Jacob Marshall, and we all knew each other, and he said, if you can just be flexible with me and work like when I don't have paying gigs that are actually hiring me to engineer, then I'll record your your May thing that I'm hearing about for free. And so I was like, okay, this is awesome. I, I'm definitely writing songs, and I definitely see uh, like potential in this band that I haven't even really like started yet, but I just feel very strongly about, you know, what can happen positively from this band. So Jacob uh, was roommates with this guy named Kenna. And Kenna came to a May rehearsal when we were first getting started. And Kenna uh, was produced by the Neptunes. So the Neptunes are Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo. And so Pharrell, like happy Pharrell, and uh, just like has been producing forever, everything from like Hella Good by No Doubt to you know, songs on Justified, Justin Timberlake, um, you know, just like, geez, uh, Jay-Z, Nelly, um, you name it. And Kenna uh, came to the May rehearsal and basically stole me away from May. And so I moved out to L.A. I dropped out of college with my parents' blessing. And I became the uh, auxiliary musician for Kenna's band. So Kenna had two keyboard players. He had a drummer. And then he had me, and I played mainly guitar, a little bit of bass, and then he told me I needed to play piano in a song too. Well, my mom, uh, you know, she played piano around me when I was a kid, but I had no piano skills whatsoever. And the first week that I moved out to L.A. to join Kenna's band, uh, the drummer was fired uh these these drum grooves were like neptune's hip-hop production like very syncopated you know hi-hats only here and not there kick placements only here and not there uh arrangements and so um the drummer was like kind of playing over top of the tracks that were uh you know that we were playing along to from the pro Tools sessions and he wasn't playing exactly what the grooves were he was just kind of playing simpler grooves on top of the groove and the drummer got fired and I was like oh my god I just I just dropped out of college and I've been asked to play instruments that I've never played in front of anybody let alone like in my own you know quiet time I've never really played uh I need to make sure that I don't get fired because this is a dream come true Kenna was uh on flawless records in 2000 and 2001 and flawless had it was a label that was started by fred durst from limp biscuit it had puddle of mud it had stained and it had kenna it was so different because if you listen to kenna kenna sounds like depeche mode and radiohead and beatles and neptunes 
you know, like Pharrell, Chad type production stuff. So it's really out there. It's definitely alternative. And Kenna was just like six foot six, maybe Ethiopian uh, dude who was a, like liked skateboarding, but liked you two and hung out with like hip hop producers. And so, you know, the bar was very high. Um, Kenna got out of his label deal with Flawless and then was signed, I think it was to Columbia. And he was signed by Matt Pinfield. And Matt Pinfield hosted a show on MTV in the 90s called 120 Minutes. Came on every Sunday night from like midnight to 2 a.m. Maybe it was or 10 to midnight. I can't remember. But it basically just like featured brand new alternative music videos from brand new alternative artists or brand new songs from brand new albums like all the time. And so Matt Pinfield was like one of the coolest guys ever on MTV. And now like in a matter of being in Kenna's band for, you know, probably six to eight months, I've met Fred Durst. I've met Matt Pinfield. Uh, I've definitely, you know, hung out with Chad and Pharrell many times. And then we had our first tour ever and we opened up for the faint and no doubt. And so we were the first of three. I was a 19 year old kid playing keys, playing bass, playing guitar. Uh, the two keyboard players ended up playing, uh, to this day, the keyboard player uh, and musical director for Kenna is Kelly Clarkson's musical director. Uh, he was also the like band leader, musical director for American Idol, and that's how Kelly got him. She stole him away. And uh, the other one, uh, Max, he had this really rad band called the high speed scene and then he's been Katy perry's keyboard player for a number of years so i was just like in a band uh plucked out of my you know post high school band uh i was immediately in la with these guys that were already just monster musicians and were going to keep climbing the ladder and keep doing amazing things in front of you know tons of people and so when I would come home from my my times with Kenna, I would go into the studio and I would write or and record like two or three new May songs that I had written while I was in L.A. Or I wrote them while I was home and then I had to just kind of think about them and keep messing with them in my hotel room, hotel room at night um, and then wait until I could get back to Virginia and hang out with Jacob and hang out with Mark and turn these ideas into May songs. So I was in this really cool place where I got to see a really, really awesome artist working with incredible musicians on a great label, you know, just living in Hollywood, California. And then I could come back to May and be like, guys, this is what I learned. This is what I think we could learn from this is what I think you know we shouldn't do uh let's just keep writing music and keep recording music at Mark's studio and so uh it was really like I would spend my my time in LA with Kenna I'd come home and make what ended up being Destination Beautiful May's first album and we probably only played about five to ten shows before we were done with our album before we were assigned to a label, before we had a manager, before we had a booking agent, an attorney. And this is all because I was learning things, you know, through my relationship and my situation as a hired gun musician in Kenna's band. Uh, 
Uh, our first manager was based out of LA, so I got to meet him when I was out in LA playing with Kenna, and I got to you know kind of uh, act like I wasn't totally impressed with him, and I, I was impressed with with the management company that that worked with us you know first, but like I had already met managers before, so I wasn't you know like wined and dine once with uh, you know by someone that we shouldn't have worked with. I kind of got to learn the ins and outs through Kenna. Uh, Kenna also, Malcolm Gladwell has a book called Blink, and there's a chapter in there called The Kenna Dilemma, and it's actually about why Kenna didn't, like, really break as an artist, as even though his, uh, his songwriting and his album was so wonderfully made and so wonderfully produced, um... So, like, I was, you know, in a band that Malcolm Gladwell wrote about. I was just, like, accidentally living in the best-case scenario to kind of set me up to be, <laughs> uh, you know, humbly, like, ready for anything. And I'd already seen somebody get kicked out of a band, so I knew I had to hold my own. I used to take that keyboard back to my hotel room. I put green uh, electric tape on the uh the notes that i was allowed to play and the song was an f and so you know there's i think there was actually a key change in the bridge but there was just a couple of maybe one or two tops black keys that had green tape on them and the rest were white so i just knew if i touch these notes even if i don't play them at the right time i'm not going to hit a note that's out of key and that's going to be better than you know uh playing just something that totally is noticeably off. So I would do whatever I could to practice, to learn, and to put myself in a position to do my very best. And when I came home, um for good and no longer played with Kenna, we just had a couple of songs left to write and record before we had a full length album. And that album came out on Tooth and Nail Records the night before my twenty first birthday. And so February 25th, 2003, I've already been on tour opening up for The Movie Life, Brand New, and Vendetta Red with May. And now I can see that we're going to go to the West Coast for the first time as a band. I've already been there with Kenna, so I know what it's like to be in California. But I get to drive there and play other cities and states along the way instead of just, you know, fly directly to Los Angeles and uh you know to see like a tiny little ad in the back of a magazine for my my band's first album destination beautiful to go to a barnes and noble and grab that magazine and and also see it the cd for sale at, at barnes and noble as well it was like this is incredible this is like the best thing ever and it kind of happened so quickly too because of you know just being in transit as a high school kid uh bouncing around from band to band instrument to instrument uh school to school um i just kind of had to put myself out there every time and be willing to fill in the gaps for anybody who was looking for somebody like me and um by the time may's first album came out you know that was me writing almost all those songs all by myself and um bringing them to the guys and asking them you know can you play this? And, you know, could we try doing it this way? And Mark, uh, 
had such a good time recording our band. He said, you know, just be patient with, with me and let's like experiment and try different things. And uh, so I remember we recorded the drum set one piece at a time. He's like, if you do, if you let me do it this way, uh, I can have total isolation on the entire kit. And some of the mistakes I might make from, you know, putting all the mics on one kit and, you know, doing it once, like we can have complete isolation separation from the cymbal, you know, the crash cymbal to the kick drum to the snare to the hi-hat etc so we were accidentally being innovative and trying new things uh, because we had the luxury of time and uh, so that became our first record destination beautiful and we signed with a manager before we signed with tooth and nail we were going to sign with fueled by ramen records and we ended up signing with Tooth and Nail because Tooth and Nail offered us a licensing deal instead of uh, having to sell our masters. And of course, we had never signed a deal before, so we didn't really know one from the other. But we knew that we got to own the rights to these songs, these recordings. And after five years, the label gives the album back to us and we make 100% profit on it. It's like, oh, that sounds like the best case scenario for a record deal. Let's sign that one. And so... We, I think, got a deal like that because we were a band back in 1999, 2000, 2001. it really did take that long because Mark just, you know, fit us in when we could. And, of course, when I moved away and played with Kenna, it probably did take like two full years, um, uh, you know, here and there recording Destination Beautiful. But uh, since we were one of these first bands that, you know, would write, record produce even mix our own album and just give it to our label and ask them to master it and to help us out with artwork and band photos um they gave us a licensing deal and we took that and uh i think out of the seven or even eight releases that may has now um all but two of them we own the rights to and so we, you know, once we learned that we could own uh, our own masters, uh, it was really hard to give that up. For the Everglow, we did sell our, our masters to Tooth & Nail. And for Singularity, we uh, sold our masters to Capitol Records. But um, all other May releases, uh, even the one that uh, we just put out late last year, um, these are all albums that um, with May I own independently. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's definitely sounds like the best case scenario for like a first kind of record deal, and especially, you know, kind of the things you're able to glean from your experience with Kenna, and you know, kind of getting into the into the industry at the time you did and getting to learn everything. It was like great, like baptism by fire, like learning on the job type stuff. So yes, that's great, man. Absolutely, and you know, it just happened to be where I had some really just innovative creative bold friends and i would find myself in situations where they'd ask me to be part of what they're doing and i would always say yes and i would always learn what i didn't know yet and i would always say i would do it before i even knew what it would take but i just believed in myself to know that well if someone else can do it i can do it too so let me just say yes and then commit the time to make sure i can do it right man um, so you talked about, you know, recording uh, Destination Beautiful kind of a piece at a time, but I did want to ask about the Everglow, man. How did that kind of come together conceptually? 
you know, coming off of that first album. I know it's it's a very like uh, it's like a album unlike any that I had heard. And so whenever I heard it in 2005 when it came out, I was just like, this is insane. Like, this is an album that I don't want to jump around. <laughs> I want to, like, just listen to it from the very beginning. Um, how did the concept for that kind of come together as far as, like, you know, for people that are familiar with the album or maybe not, um, you know, kind of one song flowing into the next, flowing into the next? Well, you know, first of all, all of my favorite albums have always done that. And maybe it hasn't been a seamless thing, but I will say – that my favorite artists put out albums that you can always listen to from top to bottom. Um, whether it be like uh, Transatlanticism by Death Cab for Cutie or Clarity by Jimmy Eat World or Abbey Road by The Beatles or Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. There are these albums that you always want to start on track one and you just want to let them play from start to finish. So the songwriter in me wanted to write an album that you would not take it any other way, but you'd want to start it from track one and let it just play. So, you know, first of all, I just want to make sure that we wrote the best songs that we could. And a lot of people, a lot of artists might talk about a sophomore slump, but for me, I was more, I was becoming more uh, of a, of a songwriter every day after our first record came out. Um, being on tour, watching other bands perform, opening up for other bands, having you know made friends with other band members from other bands. Uh, it just opened up my mind and, and, and my creative juices were just flowing. And so I was writing all the time and I uh, couldn't wait to put out another record. Like just, just you know, probably three to six months after Destination Beautiful came out, I was already writing and had written probably several songs that would end up being on the Everglow. We did a lot of our demoing at Mark's studio before we went out to Los Angeles and made that record with Ken Andrews. And Ken Andrews is like lead singer, producer, engineer, songwriter for the band Failure. He's an incredible mix and engineer. He's mixed uh, Paramore Records, and he's mixed Back, Nine Inch Nails, Jimmy Eat World. Uh, he's just got a great list of, of art that he's mixed. He's produced a lot of really great stuff. When we went out to make uh, the Everglow with him, he had just finished mixing In Motion by Copeland. And Copeland... Uh, our first headline tour ever uh, was really more of a co-headline tour because we got to take Copeland out as our main support. And that was because we were really good friends with those guys and we just loved being around them and we asked them if they would tour with us and they said yes and made for a killer tour. The first first headline tour for May was May and Copeland, this band called The Working Title and Slow Coming Day, which is another tooth and nail band. But... Uh, he was just mixing uh, In Motion. We got to listen to some of it in the studio at uh, NRG Studios in, in L.A. And and uh, so this was like 2004, and Napster was big, and BitTorrents were big, and uh, the inevitability of albums being leaked was what we were dealing with. And... The album for me was a collection of songs that 
put in a particular order, we're going to flow well together. And we're also going to tell the story of like this sort of dream coming true for me. It's like I had been in bands in high school. I had played with Kenna. I had bounced around from school to school and tried to make friends here and there. Well, now I'm like in this band and people are noticing us and people are showing up to the shows and they're buying their tickets in advance and they sing the words to our songs and they know them by heart and they tell us how much our band already means to them. And I'm like, wait, what? This is really happening? And so I wanted to tell the story like in metaphor and and just through the imagery that my 22 you know year old mind could put together with with chords and melodies and grooves and rhythms I wanted to tell a little bit a little bit of that story about just sort of like you know the realization of of a dream coming true all the way back to when I was air drumming uh in my room or handwriting lyrics to songs that weren't my own just to see my you know my handwriting uh you know putting poetry together and so now I'm doing it and it's relating to people the way that it always had related to me and moved me and I wanted to be clever as well and uh, I remember well what's the way that I learned how to read I learned with these books on tape um my mom would get me these books on tape when I was really young and basically it was a cassette tape you put in the player and you hit play and then you have a book and you just read along and it would always say like you'll know it's time to turn the page when the chimes ring like this and that was a way right, if, you, yeah. if you really didn't know you know how to read just yet that would be a guide to help you turn the page and keep going and I was like oh man that was like a, a vivid childhood memory for me I I would love to kind of like put that in somehow and what I'd also like to do in this season of records being leaked all the time I would love for somebody to hear our record because they illegally downloaded it and the second that they you know, press play on their computer, they'll realize that they don't get to have the experience that we intended our listeners to have. And so you're going to have to read along. You're going to have to have the artwork to accompany the music. You're, we're going to create a prologue and an epilogue, just like um, these these books on tape had prologues and epilogues uh, when I was a kid. <coughs> and um and so we just kind of like realized that if we if we went hard after that that we would fill in the creative gaps to make our album we'd find a way to make the album seamless we'd find a way to tell a story uh that didn't you know it wasn't on the nose but it was like clear that this was sort of a conceptual album and you'd really need the artwork and you'd really need to, um, you know, experience the album the way that, that the band wrote and recorded these songs in, with intention, with purpose. And it was really just kind of running with the idea and believing in it enough to not look back and, and you know, not really self-doubt, but just sort of... Um, let the moment kind of dictate the way the album was made. And uh, that's really like how it kind of all came together was like telling the story of, of like this realized dream and, and fighting Napster and 
make and <laughs> and making an album that like really seamlessly just you know started and ended and you wanted to listen to the whole thing the same way that Abbey Road you know I always started with Come Together and I don't skip around and I just let it go all the way until the end the last track on on the record and um it's just something that I've always loved about my favorite artists is when they can write an album that I never want to start on track three or track six or just listen to the singles or whatever. It's like that album was intentionally made to start it and never interrupt the flow because the artist created it with intention, with love, with passion. And that's always been a a goal and a dream of mine since, you know, since before I could write a song. And so the Everglow was that opportunity to do that. That's awesome, and yeah, I'd, I'd be remiss uh, if I didn't ask you about. Um, we had an interesting through line. Uh, I mentioned I'd gotten to talk to Shane from Valencia, and he actually got to work with Kenny from the starting line. Sure. And I wanted to ask you about uh, recording suspension. I know the demo of that. He's actually featured on that, correct? Yeah, he is. Um, the starting line was doing, I think, like their drive-through invasion tour. And we were doing demos for the Everglow, and Kenny, we'd already played some shows with with the starting line, and Kenny was uh, fastly becoming a good friend of mine and and, and all of ours in May, and all the guys in the starting line are are good friends of ours. But um, we just picked up Kenny. He was uh, in town for uh, the show that was at the Norva, the hometown venue that... uh, um, that we, you know, in Norfolk, Virginia, that, that May's played uh, so many times. But uh, Kenny was there with the starting line playing that day, and we picked up Kenny from Soundcheck. He said, you want to come to the studio and hang out with us? And he said, yeah. And he was like, can I sing on something? We're like, dude, of course you can. And so it was really that simple. He just he heard suspension where it was that day, and he came up with his lyric and his melody immediately and sang it, and we brought him back to the venue in time for the show to start. And we were all there, you know, standing side stage rooting for our our buds in the starting line. But it was really that simple. It was like really easy back then to make something like that happen. Of course we had the luxury. We were privileged to have our own studio, Mark studio to work out of, but that season just happened to be where Kenny was on tour and we were at home and Kenny just came over to probably hang out with us for a few hours, and it turned into a collaboration. Uh, that's great, man. Yeah, I do. I mean, that is so true that, you know, the album just ebbs and flows so well, and just to hear the progression from, like, it definitely is one of those albums that it's just, like, you want to start from the beginning and just let it play through just like you are saying. But I just thought that was so funny, and I had to mention about Kenny from the starting lines. Like, that's so random that the same exact thing was able to actually happen with, the Valencia guys, but they're from uh, Pennsylvania. And so I think starting lines also from Pennsylvania. So it was like one of those things, they had a connection like that. So I was like, dang, all these guys up in the Northeast are just collabing with each other. Well, we were really fortunate to be a band's band. And so as soon as May put out destination, beautiful, a lot of bands took to us and that allowed us to get in on some really good support slots like early on. And so uh, May, you know, in this era of the scene, quote unquote, in like the early 2000s, before YouTube and Facebook and MySpace and um, 
you know, obviously Spotify, Twitter, etc. The best way for a band to be noticed is to go on tour. And we uh, became friends with the starting line. They they heard our album and loved it and reached out to us and asked us to open up for them. And honestly, I didn't even know who the starting line was until we got to play with them. And then as soon as I watched them live, I was like, oh, these guys are great. I love this band. And um, we just, I guess, like always were kind of fortunately in the right place in the right time. And when it became time for May to just hit the road and support other bands on their tours, uh, we were fortunately always offered tours to do that. And so I remember in 03, you know, from January to June, we toured straight and didn't come home once. And we just ended a tour and then drove to the next, you know, city or state, even if it was 1,500 miles away and supported that band's tour and then that band's tour and that band's tour. I remember we were on tour with this band called Elliot and um, uh, our booking agent called us and said, Hey, we've got two starting line shows. We need you to drop off this tour and drive here and go play with the starting line. And we're like, "Uh, are we supposed to, is that a good idea? She goes, yes, just go do it. And we went out there and, you know, we played it at the, I think it was like uh, somewhere in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I, I believe is where it was. And, um, play with the starting line you know and they were selling out probably a seven eight hundred capacity room and like these teenagers were doing it and we're just like oh my gosh this is amazing you know like how can we play more shows with the starting line so we would you know go into their dress room and say thank you and they'd say hey we love your we love destination beautiful we'd say well please let us play more shows with you guys and let's hang out all the time and so by the time it was 2004 we had you know, had a really good uh, just kind of catalog of memories that we had made with those guys. And like I said, Kenny was a really good friend. When Kenny did his side project, uh, Personnel, before he did Vacationer, uh, Personnel opened up for May on a, on a U.S. tour. And so we've been trying to be around Kenny and his musical genius uh, as long as we've known him and uh, always are – like grateful to the starting line for being one of those bands that um, cared enough to bring us out early on and, and kind of help us find new fans. Yeah, man. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. I always wonder how like kind of collaborations like that happen. So, but Dave, I really appreciate your uh, background on the, the Everglow man. And just like the whole history of the band and everything. Um, appreciate your time. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can follow you on social media, keep up with your projects, stuff like that. Yeah, um, I'm talking to you from my studio, which is uh, in North Nashville. It's called Schematic Studios. So uh, Schematic is spelled S-C-H-E-M-A-T-I-C Studios. And uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, also I just have to mention that May did put out an album last year, and it's uh, called Multisensory Aesthetic Experience, which is actually what May stands for. And uh, you can listen to that album anywhere you like to stream music. Um, multisensory aesthetic experience means like beauty for multiple senses. And uh, we've got a 360 VR version of our album that you can listen to and watch uh, in uh, in virtual reality uh, on YouTube. 
at the same time. That's so awesome. So you can check <laughs> that out. Uh, my band is called May, and um, whatismay.com is our website. What is May is also our Instagram handle. And um, if you search May on uh, Facebook, you'll find us, M-A-E. And um, my name is David Elkins, but people call me Dave. And so you can find me, Dave Elkins, on Instagram um, and Twitter and Facebook. If you just type it out, I, I hope that I'll show up and you can find me there. Uh, well, as always, guys, you can follow us on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you again, Dave. Yeah, Harold, thank you for your time, man. I really appreciate it.